Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Okay. I had to do some of that. I was like, wait, let me make sure everything looks okay behind me. <laughs> it's nice to have the blur feature sometimes because then you can't see anything. But but then sometimes it doesn't feel real either. So crooked pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Yep. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host Ben Ryman. Uh today on the show we've got uh Shreya Deshmukh. Nice job. Yes. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Shreya's a PhD candidate at the University of South Florida, and folks will the folks who listen to the episode will be familiar with that university from a recent episode uh, of uh, from a shameless plug of Dr. Kim Croslin that was recently on. Um, and after kind of going back to the website and real and, and, and taking a look at sort of who else works at USF. Uh, I found some other cool people, uh, and, and Shreya was one of them. And after some more digging, I found uh, that uh, Shreya works at a, um, well, I'll let her tell us more about it in a second here, but essentially, uh, folks will remember we had Wes Lowry on, um, gosh, episode 19 maybe, I'm not sure. Um, he works for Team ABA, and Team ABA does, uh, uh, basically applies behavior science to uh, coaching, um, uh, in in mostly like sp- sports, but I think there's some personal training, some nutrition. Um, but I think they have like some some, some, some cool basketball leagues and, and volleyball and some some other neat things that they were doing. Uh, and I thought that was you know really really sharp. And then I just happened upon another agency called uh, and I think ABA Sports Innovation is that right? That was called. That's um, um, and uh, discovered that Shreya was also there, and that they do some other cool things. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ruin it all. I'm gonna let her tell us the story. Um, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So before we kind of get into all all this cool stuff um, uh, and and the focus um, in particular, and folks will. Hopefully, see that in the title when we come up with one um, is uh, will will be around dance, and this is a, a essentially using ABA um, um, in, in in dance instruction, and a lot of really neat things came out of the chat you and I had um, uh, last week um, about that. Uh, uh, I'm not a dancer by any means, um, so um, uh, it's interesting to sort of learn about both the application of ABA and something different, but also the, the something different. 
So you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning a bit more about dance today as well. So I think that's going to be fun. But before we got to get into that, uh, maybe you can just uh, tell folks um, sort of your origin story, kind of how you got into the field of ABA, and then eventually, you know, what led you to be doing work in in the areas of, uh, of dance and, and other sports? Yes, absolutely. So I started off with ABA when I was pursuing my bachelor's at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And I got to work with some incredible professors and graduate students there and got started in the clinical world of ABA, working with individuals with autism. And when I graduated, I wanted to explore some other applications of ABA, and I came across health, sports, and fitness. And I saw mm. that Dr. Milton Berger was at USF, um, the University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida. And I was so interested to meet him um, and to learn about his research. And I found that there is a way for me to connect um, my experience with dance with ABA. And so my background as a dancer, I've been a dancer since I was a young girl, and I initially trained in Indian classical styles of dance and then explored mm. other styles of dance as well. So dance has always been my passion, and then I had my interest in ABA, and I came to USF, and I found that there was a way to put those two together, and I was so happy to get started here at USF. And... From that experience of combining dance and ABA, I also got to know Dr. Mallory Quinn, who's also based here in Tampa, who does the clinical work um, combining dance and ABA in the clinical world. So that was very exciting. So I work both sides, research and clinical, and I love what I do. That's awesome. So a couple things. So you mentioned uh, Dr. Milton Berger. Dr. Milton Berger is not someone I would normally associate with dance instruction. I think of Milton Berger, I think of um, uh, safety skills. Mm -hmm. You know, I think of, uh, you know, uh, guns in the home, firearms. I think of um, the really, really cool. And I don't know, you know, he he's must be a master at sort of, uh, you know, uh, writing to ethics boards because he can do these really cool sort of in situ studies of things that, you know, are super sketchy, you know, like child abuse and, <laughs> and, 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 and guns and, and, and sort of those sorts of things. And, you know, I cannot imagine what it'd be like to write a sort of, uh, uh, ethics proposal on, on, on what well, we're going to have firearms in the home. We're going to see if through our intervention, if the kids grab them or not, you know, that sort of thing, or we're going to, or I, I, I remember he presented at ABAI. When was that? I think it was like 2010 or 11. And, uh, and he was talking about the, I think he was talking about one of the, the, the sort of uh, training folks to, for, with disabilities to, um, you know, um, 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 report abuse um, or something to that effect. And he actually had Confederates coming in and, uh, and they would do things like, um, you know, ask the, the subject to remove their shirt or those sorts of things, you know, that might happen in sort of an abuse situation, which I mean, amazing because in, in the sense that he's able to, uh, you know, uh, uh, really test in these really dangerous situations if those interventions are successful, but the other side of the coin really, um, you know, uh, probably tough to get through. So anyway, point being, uh, what's, what's Dr. Bellenberger got to do with dance? <laughs> Yeah, so he, as you explained, has 
explored so many different applications of ABA. And one of those is health, sports, and fitness. And I think mm. specifically um, the sports and fitness side of things. So he has um, worked with many master's students and some doctorate students as well who are interested um, in applying ABA to their specific sport that they're passionate about. Mm. Um, and so... Yeah, he actually does have quite a bit of research on um, improving sports performance and then also has some research on um, increasing physical activity as well. So, yeah, yes. surprising. He, he does have That's that, right. That's that right. line of research yes. as well. <laughs> He That's does right. a lot of remember, different things. You're right. I do remember <laughs> some of the stuff on increasing physical activity now that you mention it. So, yeah, that's mm -hmm. fair. Um, so... Uh, dancing. You say you've been dancing since you were since you since you were a young child, and 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 kind of uh, beginning with sort of a classical Indian dance, which is so cool. Um, I, I'm we're, we're very fortunate uh, in the part of the world that we live in, not where I am right now in um, sort of a remote um, sort of Western British Columbia, but uh, but spent a lot of years in sort of the Vancouver uh, kind of Surrey, BC area, which um, uh, a lot of folks um, will may be familiar with has a uh, uh, a massive um, um, South Asian population. Um, in fact, I think I heard at one point that there's sort of in sort of Greater Vancouver, you have a massive South Asian pop population, a massive sort of Asian, predominantly Chinese population. And then the minority is the white population, kind of uh, in, in 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 that part of the and part of the world. And so, really, you know, uh, uh, definitely a melting pot of culture. But you know, I, I just remember when we were when we lived in when when my wife and I lived in Surrey and going you know going down to sort of the you know the you know the valley and Vasaki different festivals and 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 just watching all the cool dance. I I worked in a group home where I had um, I managed a group home where I had. I think I had six or seven uh, South Asian staff and, 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 and one woman in particular, um, uh, Cherry was her name. And Cherry used to, every now and then, Cherry would show up in my office with a, with a box about yay big, mm -hmm. this fat, full of homemade samosas. And uh, say, here you go, Ben. Take him home. Like, whoa, this is awesome. And uh, yeah, and 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 of course, and, and 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 lots of traditional dress and and uh, at our staff parties and dancing and and uh, just it's just amazing to watch um, um, classical Indian dance and, and some of the stuff that kind of happens there. And the music is just awesome. Um, um, so I can see why you're into it. Um, is um, Is that is that one of the areas that you 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 teach in? Not currently. So mm. since then, I've kind of moved away from some Indian styles, and then mm. um, I, I help out with maybe some some of the dance classes, but maybe the yoga classes or the fitness classes. Mm. I'm a certified kids yoga teacher, and then also a certified personal trainer. So it allows me to wow. work with. Um, individuals with disabilities and then providing them ABA therapy within those contexts. So I've been able to um, work at Mallory Studio and sort of incorporate my ABA therapy into these other areas of interest of mine. Um, so, but eventually I do hope to go back to the Indian classical dancing. So that's still there. <laughs> so what, uh, what, makes, what makes one a certified kids yoga teacher? Well, there is um, a training... I, 
it's an online or in-person training. Um, I think it's fairly well known in, in Tampa and in the yoga community, but it's mm. literally, it's called Kidding Around Yoga. And so that's mm. one of the um, really fun and it was a great program to take. So that's how I got certified as a kids yoga teacher. And so they teach you how to incorporate um, yoga, but like kind of making it more applicable for children who maybe can't sit for that long and meditate, but how do you still teach them those aspects of yoga? So it was a very cool training. <laughs> And so and what's, uh, what's the age range there that you're teaching? Yeah. Um, well, I started with baby yoga, so I was really what? teaching. Like, they, some of my kids weren't even one yet, so they were really little. And they would come um, with their parents, and we would do yoga with them. And it was really fun. The parents were helping um, assist them through the different yoga poses. But, man. I mean, they could just like whip out a downward dog. Like, oh my goodness, I was so impressed. I was surprised. Mallory had had told me that, oh, it's such a fun class to teach. You should definitely teach it for your first time. And I had so much fun with it. It was crazy. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what that would be like to sort of uh, take an infant and kind of, you know, bend them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, are the parents kind of holding them in downward dog sort of thing because obviously yes. you know, these, these are kids that aren't even walking yet let alone crawling and so um, yes definitely you know, maybe they could do cat and cow i guess maybe if they got to the crawling piece there but right and then some of the kids we would have semester after semester so as they they themselves are growing up i can see that the parents are not having to assist as much and then you know another semester later the kids are doing the downward dog independently so it was really cool to see just the kids over so many years. And then so it goes from baby yoga all the way up to like teen yoga and then, of course, adult yoga. But that's a whole nother certification and things like that. Right on. Right on. And and what about sort of this 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 place that you're working? So Dr. Quinn, I think, is, is she like the owner or 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 kind of runs the company? What is the company called and, and, and what do you folks do there? Yes, it's called ABA Sports Innovations. Originally started with training competitive dancers using different behavioral interventions and procedures, but mm. really has just flourished into so much more than that now. Um, Mallory has done such a wonderful job exploring new areas of application for um, health, sports, and fitness. So what originally started off just in dance, she was able to work with kids with special needs, um, able to apply ABA therapy within that. Um, and then we also get into like the supervision and training aspect where um, we train different um, athletic coaches or personal trainers or BCBAs, BCABAs in how to apply ABA in health, sports and fitness. So um, that's actually kind of related to her dissertation where she um, developed a point uh, manual, that's what she calls it. So she developed a manual that explains how to ap apply all of these different behavioral interventions and procedures to dancing um, if, if it was implemented by a dance teacher. But then from there, she kind of generalized it to any athletic trainer or coach. And so then it's applicable to many more sports. So it's been cool to to see how that point program has really developed into this 
sort of introductory training for people who are just jumping into the health, sports, and fitness in ABA. And then from there, they usually get involved in some sort of supervision and they just take off. It's incredible. That's awesome. And so does, um, I can sort of see the BCBA side of things. Does, does, um, cause I, and, and again, cause I know Wes talked a lot about that with, with, with team ABA that they, they would, they would have supervision and sort of continuing education and whatnot available for the BCBAs. How, how do, uh, sort of regular old sports coaches, um, um, you know, uh, uh, take to this, like what, what's, I guess, like, I guess number one kind of, why would they come to you in the first place? Like, what what gets them to you in the first place? Because I, I wouldn't think that, you know, sports coaches would even be aware of sort of, you know, some of this stuff. I, I know there are coaching programs, and I believe you can be, like, certified as a coach in some way. I am not an athlete by any means. I don't do sports. I don't do dance. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm got kind of two left feet. Um, uh, I'll, I'll ride my bike and go for a run every now and then, but that's about it. Um, and do some yoga. Um, but beyond that, I, you know, I, I don't really understand the whole athletic system. Um, so yeah. So what, what, what would make someone who's a sports coach come to you and, and what do they, how do they find it? What, what's sort of the feedback? Yeah. So Mallory started off working with dance teachers and she herself is a dancer and dance teacher. So I mm. think initially it started off with a lot of her contacts in the Tampa Bay area. And so that personal connection really allowed her to sort of sell her idea to them. Mm. Um, and from there, I think it's been a lot of networking. And um, as ABA has disseminated generally, um, also ABA and health sports and fitness has slowly started disseminating as well. But that mm. buy-in component is tough. Um, you definitely mm -hmm. have to be confident and really sell your product and sell your services. So that way, you know, if you can prove that, that it's effective and it's efficient, then people are, are willing to put um, the time and money into, you know, finding out more. Um, mm. I think the data and the results really do speak for themselves. Um, we get a lot of feedback. Oh my goodness. Like, I can't believe how, how this works so well. Like, I can't believe that this student who's been struggling on one aspect of this athletic movement for so many years is now doing it correctly. Hmm. So, um, once they do get their foot in the door and, and have sort of a, a taste of how, um, quickly and effective, like this, behavioral procedure is in improving sports performance I mean the buy-in is there um, so it's really cool to see how quickly people come back and how long they stay with us too that is cool we know ABA is uh, you know data-based um, do uh, do you find so, so do these do these sort of non ABA folk uh, when they leave you are they are they are they collecting data? Are they recording data? Do they do, they do all that sort of piece as well? And, and, uh, and are they into it? Like, cause I imagine a lot of that would be new to them. Yes. Uh, for those who are, who are interested, they're super into it. For some who have some hesitations about graphing, it can be tough. Um, we do encourage in our trainings that, um, you have to use the data to make decisions. You, that's how you're going to know if it's working or not. So mm. I think that when we're training, we sort of drill in that point about, you know, 
you really should be graphing. You really need to be collecting the data on it. And that's where you're going to see the results. And so then once they do start that, they're like, oh, yes, I can see that this data point has gone up just one, you know, one percentage point. But that's showing me that the student is learning. So I think that it's um, something new for them, but we can we can get them there. Um, we do provide like graphing tutorials and training during our sort of point seminar. So mm. that helps getting them mm. used to seeing the graphs and used to putting data in. Um, and then we're, of course, there at any time to help assist if there are any questions. Right on. And are you getting coaches? Are you getting folks that are sort of primarily sort of yoga and dance teachers? Are you getting coaches from a lot of different sports? So many different sports. It's so incredible to see when we have um, a point program with quite a few participants, how diverse the backgrounds are. We do, of mm. course, have BCBAs and BCABAs who are interested in entering health sports and fitness. But then we also have people who have no experience in ABA. Um, they're a personal trainer or they're a basketball coach or um, a swimming mm. coach. I'm just thinking back to some of the yeah, people yeah, that yeah. I've interacted with. And they, you know, just found out about this training and they're like, oh, this seems cool. And they join and they love it. Um, we've even had like nutritionists and health coaches. So it's interesting to see how we have to apply um, all of our examples to different backgrounds. Sometimes we have to get pretty mm -hmm. creative. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You, when we kind of talked before, yeah. and, and something that also that drew me to you is as sort of, you know, maybe slightly different from some of the other folks that I've, I've looked into in the kind of health and fitness, health sports and fitness kind of area, is that you're also um you're also doing this work with uh with 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 folks with disabilities so it's not just uh, it's not just coaching for sort of sort of typical folks in typical sports but you're also applying some of this stuff to folks with disabilities what's that look like because i know you know generally speaking and and maybe this is just my my sort of non-athletic bias here but generally speaking you know uh, you know certainly at least school age kids uh, you know a lot of autistic kids in particular you know tend to not do so well in phys ed courses or team sports or those sorts of things because of not actually not always not often not always because of anything because of them but because of the context and the systems are are not all that inclusive and so you know, things just don't work well. And if they are inclusive, they're inclusive in the sense of, you know, the kid becomes, you know, the equipment manager or the water boy or, you know, the, the ball grabber in tennis or something instead of actually participating in this or the mascot, which is, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, frustrating uh, from sort of a, a stigma perspective. But, um, you know, I, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there's folks that love being the mascot. And I think I've seen a few that do. Um, so, what kind of what kind of work are you doing with 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 folks with disabilities to kind of um, get them more into physical activity? Yeah, so kind of have the clinical side of that, and then the research side of that. So Perfect. Clinic, clinically, um, we do have private sessions. Generally, we have private sessions where we work one on one with a client with a um, disability, and so we develop a plan specific to that individual. So depending on what their goals are for whether they're there for fitness, yoga, dance, we try to, you know, 
make that plan according to their interests. And so we select different target skills that we're going to work on. We select different antecedent and reinforcement strategies that we might include. Um, and then really we just go along with this sort, sort of fitness session or this dance class, but we're using ABA throughout that. We may even incorporate um, their behavior intervention plan that they have from their primary BCBA. We'll include that in our programming that we do at the studio. So we really try to draw from all of these different areas, so from their primary BCBA, from um, what the parent is reporting, and try to create um, a session that's most suited for that individual and their interests. Um, with, with the research side of things, I'm working with, um, mainly now I'm going into the area of increasing physical activity for individuals with intellectual disabilities. And so kind of moving away from the sports side of things and going mm. more into the physical activity. Mm. And so mm. with that, we're um, generally the research in physical activity looks at increasing steps or um, increasing like daily steps or something like that. Mm. Um, we all hear of the 10,000 steps a day recommendation or mm. we have our, our tracker, our Fitbit trackers that kind of track that for us. So that's one of the main areas of research right now in, in physical activity. But I'm actually trying to look at a different area of physical activity. Um, so the US Department of Health and Human Services recommends that we do engage in physical activity, um, moderate to vigorous physical activity, or MVPA. And so some of that, or the majority of that actually, should be focused on aerobic activities in which we are increasing our heart rate, um, getting mm. that cardiovascular fitness, and um, really getting the heart pumping. But also another aspect is the muscle and bone strengthening activities. So those are things like lifting weights or jumping, things that help promote our strength. And so those activities are not typically targeted in research. And so I haven't found much research, maybe a few articles here and there, looking at promoting um, those types of strengthening activities, and especially very few articles trying to promote those activities in individuals with intellectual disabilities. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of where I'm going now with my um, research in physical activity is trying to get them to increase their number of reps on these certain activities and exercises. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. And, and needed. So, I, I mean, I do, when I was doing kind of more clinical work, um, I was working mostly with adults with intellectual disabilities, often kind of more on the profound end of, of, of the spectrum. Um, and... You know, and often in kind of group home, kind of day program context, and um, you know, often physical activity, physical fitness, and nutrition, and those sorts of things were 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 top of mind. Not necessarily for the individual, but because of so. In in at least in in, in our province, we have something called licensing for um, um, uh, residences and whatnot, and it's sort of comes out of, I think it comes more out of kind of like the, the sort of nursing home regulations and, and those sorts of things, but they're, but, or in hospitals and whatnot, but they're also applied to group homes that have, I think, residents that are, I think, three or more residents in one, in one house. Um, and, you know, uh, if any of the provincial folks are listening right now, I apologize, but I, I find it to be very institutional um, um, because the regulations are so detailed. I know they're meant to keep folks safe and 
and whatnot and, um, and, and healthy and those sorts of things. But then, but they also keep things really, really, and, and actually literally sanitized. So, you know, things like, um, you know, bleaching the, the counters every day and, and, uh, you know, so you're almost walking into a, a building that smells like a hospital in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, there's a lot of, a lot of control and I, I hope it's changed, but this, this is going back into sort of kind of like the early 2000, early to mid sort of 2000s, um, where, where both diet and exercise were, were not really a choice. They were prescribed. Um, and, and we had nutritionists and dietitians that designed the menus and, and they had to, you know, you know, very food group specific and, and it didn't really matter what they liked eating. Um, it was more about, you know, yeah, yeah, ensuring it, 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 you can, you can tell I'm, I'm, it, it, there's a bit of a soapbox frustration here for me because we were essentially forcing these individuals to be super healthy, you know, from a, from a sort of a dietary and, you know, um, research based sort of angle. So, you know, they, they needed to be a certain weight, they needed to have a certain amount of food and so on. Um, you know, and in hindsight, you know, I think that really probably created some, some, some body image problems, issues, and, 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 and self-esteem issues. But at the same time, it also created a ton of challenging behavior, mm-hmm. um, you know, because, you know, you're, you know, this is my home. You're going to make me do this stuff? No, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, you know, engage those behaviors that will allow me to escape from those activities. And so it ended up really being that most of the, uh, the exercise was walks. Lots of long, 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 long walks. Um, and staff enjoyed these because it allowed them to sort of, you know, walk ahead of the individual, you know, be on their phones. Um, some of them smoke a cigarette in the back, you know, or whatever, you know, to sort of, um, you know, it was almost like a, a break for them. And they just let the individual walk for hours and hours and hours, which, of course, you know, um, was uh, frustrating for them on, on on a few levels. One, because there was never a destination. You know, we're never walking to do something. It was just walking for the sake of walking. I don't know two people that just walk to walk for like two hours straight or longer. You know, usually you have a, a plan where you're going to go and do something and that sort of thing. Um, and so, But but what I've also found is when we've tried to sort of introduce, you know, activities, like we'll give them a basketball or whatever, you know, they throw them the basketball, they catch it and they drop it and they just kind of move on um, because they don't really know what they're supposed to be doing with that basketball. And then staff just kind of quickly kind of give up on sort of introducing new activities. So I'm curious, I don't really know where I'm going here, but I'm curious what um, what kind of thoughts on sort of on you know, physical activity for folks that, you know, growing up never really were exposed to these sports or, or exposed to these activities. Um, um, you know, so there, there really isn't a lot of motivation. And then, in fact, around muscle strengthening, interestingly enough, um, there was often an attitude for a long time, and again, very institutional, um, that we shouldn't help these folks get stronger because then their challenging behaviors will become more severe. You know, if, you know, if we actually put someone in boxing, you know, isn't that a, maybe a bad idea was sort of the thought. And I actually had a client in, in, in boxing who was doing boxing and, 
everyone thought that was a bad idea because he was an aggressive, he engaged in aggressive, challenging behavior and thought, okay, now he's going to actually have technique to go with his, you know, aggressive, challenging behavior. So there seems to just be a lot of stigmatic kind of barriers to sort of, to sort of, um, getting folks involved in these sorts of things. So I'm, I'm curious, I guess one, you know, have you kind of run into that? Like as far as, you know, maybe a, a belief that individuals who are, you know, in the more kind of severe end of in intellectual disabilities or any level of intellectual disabilities um, can't and don't want to do exercise um, and be, um, you know, um, that there just isn't any variety to it. How, how have you kind of dealt with all of that? Or is that just an experience that I've had and it's not common across the board? Yeah, I, I think that, um, I think it's, it's possible, like you, you've experienced it and it's possible that it's happening in other contexts and other environments as well. Um, I would definitely say that in the studio, we try to ver like vary the types of activities that we're doing. Um, mm. Even if a client is, you know, coming for a fitness like workout session, we still may incorporate music and have them sort mm. of doing their exercises to music, or we may incorporate some yoga into their stretching um, at the end of the session. So I think um, providing a variety of, of options there is really important. So that way they can have choices. And so based mm -hmm. off of their choices, you know, we can ask them, oh, do you want to do yoga for more time or do you want to move to the next activity? And mm -hmm. then we can also gauge like, what is their interest? What are they interested in? Um, with the aspect of, you know, maybe handing someone a basketball and they don't know what to do with it. There is a teaching aspect too. Um, mm. you know, every time we say, oh, you need to, you know, do a, a bicep curl. Well, yeah, I can hand my client the weights, but they may not know what to do with it. Mm -hmm, so there is a, mm -hmm. there's the teaching aspect as well. So the different difference between the can't do and won't do. Can't do, mm. you know, you need to teach them how to do the skill. Mm. Won't do is a motivational issue. So we need to, yep. um, you know, figure out how we can motivate them to engage in that behavior. So yes. it's kind of two aspects to that. And yep. so there yep. are different ways that you can target that. But I think most importantly is to remember um, to go along with the client's interests because it is their recreational time. Um, so that's an important consideration. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think I think we're 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 sort of, uh, and this is this is an issue I think we run into with you know in these settings is that we sort of assume that if that they, if they don't know how to do it, then they don't want to do it. And uh, so as soon as you know Billy drops the ball, okay, he's not into basketball. Let's never try basketball again. Let's try something else. Oh, mm -hmm. we gave him a volleyball. Same thing. He dropped it. He's not into volleyball. Let's drop it. But the, the you know the, these folks have never had the opportunity uh, to be sort of introduced to sort of some of these things. I'm curious how like weightlifting isn't motivating for typical mm -hmm. folks. Um, I mean, <laughs> until until unless you know you have really set goals and and um, you know like so for example. In my younger days, I, I enjoyed cycling a lot, um, and 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 so I wanted to become. I wanted to have stronger legs so that I could pedal faster. And so I went to the gym and worked out primarily my legs, um, 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 so that in the end I could you know 
be a be a better cyclist. Through the process, I enjoyed it. It was you know it became you know I got immersed in the activity. I had you know multiple reps as it were uh, of exposure to it, and I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed going with a buddy and you know having a spotter and so on and so forth. But how how, how do you motivate a someone to someone to want to do muscle strengthening? Yeah, we we have to get pretty creative um, because sometimes there's not that interest in um, actually engaging in the exercise, the, the, the exercise itself, um, you know, yeah. doing a, a bicep curl. That's not, that's not fun. I don't want to do no. that. No, um, no. So we try to make other aspects really fun, really exciting. Um, our, our environment that we bring them into in the studio is like has lots of lights and colors. Um, they're able to change those different lights. So that way it's like their environment that they get to enjoy. And then we provide access to reinforcers based off of, you know, completing a certain amount of exercises and things like that. So we, we are able to get um, them motivated to work for other reinforcers. But I also think that we have some amazing therapists who work with us and um, just the once you get to know the client, it's just the smallest things like counting in a silly way, like, um, you know, like raising your your voice in like a high pitch and making it really fun and exciting for mm. them. Even just counting was so exciting for one of my, mm. my clients and the therapist was counting the number of um, like knee touches they were doing. And so that they were so excited to listen to her count mm. in this funny way. So, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, the creativity that's needed is it's crazy. So we try to get really creative and find different ways to motivate our clients to to do exercises when maybe they're not so interested in the exercise, but they they're willing to work for something something else. Um, it can get right pretty on. fun. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah, that sounds fun. And I think I think maybe that's where uh, you know um, you know certainly. I was lacking in the sense that, you know, as the group home manager, having no interest in sports or dance or anything like that, you know, it's probably harder for me to sort of motivate my staff to sort of do the same and, um, and sort of, and sort of bring some of their, 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 their sort of skills and, um, you know, and, and creativity into the game. So, I mean, I think that speaks to that. Um, we talked about, uh, research. So, um, and, and, um, so what, what 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 research are you doing? And I think you've actually and you published a couple of articles as well. So maybe you could talk talk a little bit about the research you you have done and are and will be doing. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is dance. Yes. So the um, kind of main publication that I have is from my thesis when I was in the master's program um, where I was working uh, with typically developing dancers. So mm. in that we were comparing two different feedback styles so or feedback interventions, verbal mm. feedback where you're just providing, um, you know, your verbal feedback. <laughs> you're just telling right. the, the, the dancer the things that they did correctly and the things that they need to improve on. Mm. versus video feedback where I would record the dancer performing mm. the skill and then show that video back to them. And as we're going through the video, I'm pausing. I'm saying, okay, see here, your leg was, was at 45 degrees. We need to raise that to 90 degrees. Or here, your mm. arm was in second position right next to your ears. That looks wonderful. So giving them specific mm. feedback going frame by frame through the skill. 
So the difference between those those two feedback styles or feedback interventions. Um, and so I um, conducted that study with three participants. And hmm. interestingly, we actually found that there were mixed results. Um, hmm. I, I hypothesized that video feedback would be better because it just yeah, seems sure. way more specific and way more involved and um, more in, more intense of a procedure and you're really getting into the fine details of the movement. Um, but when it came to the results, one for one participant, verbal feedback was more effective. For one participant, video feedback was more effective. And for the third participant, both were sort of equally effective. And mm. so um, mm. we weren't able to make, you know, big conclusions from that, except for that it may be, um, according to that individual athlete, different feedback styles may work differently. Um, one thing to note is that we weren't able to complete the study in the sense that we weren't able to run out the intervention sessions for too long because the pandemic um, mm. hit at that time. So we had to stop data collection, but there was enough data collection to at least um, you know, make some, some general conclusions about um, the mixed findings. Um, but from that, we sort of looked into what was going on during the feedback session. So during the feedback mm. session, I would have them perform the skill and I would provide feedback, whether it was verbal or video feedback. And so we sort of did an analysis of the feedback. Um, mm. And so we are looking at sort of the quality and quantity of the feedback. How complete is my feedback? Am I giving mm -hmm. feedback on all 30 sets of the TA or is it only part of the TA? And then also, is my feedback accurate? So is it high quality feedback? Am I telling them, oh, you did a good job on step X when your leg was in the air at this angle? Mm. Or, or was that completely false? Did I you know, make a mistake as, as a trainer? So looking at um, the completeness and the accuracy of the feedback and how that related to the results of the study. So that's mm. what I'm currently working on. And so we're in the process of um, analyzing the data and trying to see exactly what was happening and, and did that influence the results. And I think it's really important to look at that because that's what we're trying to figure out is like, what makes feedback work? Like, is it the quantity? Is it the mm -hmm. quality? Is it some combination of that? And it would almost be cool to see, you know, how much feedback is needed and how accurate is it doesn't need to be to still see some sort of result. Totally. It would just be so an interesting, interesting um, study. I don't know. <laughs> no, I think it's super interesting, and, I, and I'm really glad because that was going to be my next question. Is sort of, you know, I'm really glad you're looking at sort of that that quality quantity piece, those sort of those those other those other kind of metrics because because you're right, feedback is given in so many different ways by so many different people. We know mm -hmm. there's 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 you know there's some good research on sort of you know. Uh, from, from sort of the OBM literature on, you know, providing, you know, positive feedback at certain times and corrective feedback at other times and, and what that, and, and, and different ways that can be presented. Um, and I'm sure there's research on this, but I just, I haven't been, I haven't, I've only done sort of introductory OBM stuff. The, what, what does kind of the research say sort of maybe outside of dance, but just in general on feedback, uh, does it, is, is there, is there sort of any consensus to sort of, quality and quantity and, 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 and sort of how to give feedback? Yeah, I, I think generally, you know, they, they say the more specific 
feedback is preferred. It's, it's Specific, pre- yeah, right. It's preferred that you're giving that praise in exactly what the whatever supervisee, the client, the athlete, whoever, whoever mm-hmm. it is that is receiving the feedback, you are targeting exactly what they did correctly and exactly what needs to be improved. Mm. But I think that there, like you said, there is just so, um, there's no systematic like way for deli- delivering feedback yet, or mm-hmm. there's not really any sort of agreement on, on how to deliver feedback, how much yeah. feedback to deliver. Yeah. So I think there's still room for looking into that and figuring out exactly how much and how well the feedback needs to be delivered. Um, especially yeah. in the context of health, sports, and fitness, but specifically yeah. the sports aspect where you're trying to improve yeah. performance. Yeah, I mean, it's really like a, a dosage question, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, and I, I think about, I also think about sort of individual preference in there too. Mm-hmm. and Because there's sort of, you know, I know there's public feedback, there's private feedback, mm-hmm. there's like you said, video and verbal. There's also graphical feedback, yeah. you know, so showing them a graph of their performance. And then there's also, what is it? Uh, um, what's, I, I forget what the term is, where essentially they'd look at a video and and give themselves feedback. Uh, like, yeah, like a self-evaluation. Yeah, self, uh, self-evaluation <laughs> feedback. And I know that can be really, really powerful. And also mm-hmm. take a load off the give her a feedback because they don't have to say anything that's right you that, that is a good good catch good job yeah so that's how you can improve that um so are you are you so what are those aspects that you're analyzing like i mean are, are, are you just looking at amount amount well first i guess first off how are you, how are you defining quality and quantity quantity seems yeah. pretty pretty ob- more obvious but quality i'm curious about yeah, so, um, well, I guess each of the movements that I had the dancers perform, there was a task analysis associated with each one. So it's 30, 25 to 30 steps detailing exactly what they need to be doing at a specific right. time in the movement. And so my feedback should be aligned exactly with that TA. That TA is like mm. the golden thing, the target skill. It's That's the definition. So my Makes feedback sense. should be exactly like that. Um, and let's say for quantity, if it's a 30 step TA, I should have 30 steps of feedback, but realistically, Mm. when you're actually doing an intervention, a, I had clients who were six, nine and 12 years old, they cannot digest 30 steps worth of feedback. Mm. That's not possible for them to, you know, take that feedback, figure out things that they did right. And the things that they did wrong all before you have to do the next trial. That's a lot of videos to watch. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) it's it's just too much feedback in a way. Um, I had anecdotally, like when I was doing my um, thesis, I noticed that, you know, after I was giving about one minute of feedback, one of my participants started walking away from me and was kind of like, you know, just doing their own thing. I was like, oh, I'm not done yet. Mm. (laughs) I kind of had to bring them back over. Um, for the sake of the study, but in my mind, I was like, well, that's interesting. You know, if you're working with young athletes, they may not have um, the, the attention span to to listen to that much feedback for 30 mm-hmm. steps. Mm-hmm. So just like an interesting thing to add in there. Um, but then looking at the accuracy, 
because I have a TA and I recorded them, I recorded everything in my thesis. So because I recorded them, I was able to actually score how they did during the training session and then compare if I provided a praise statement when they did the step correctly or if I provided a praise statement when they did the step incorrectly or mm. was I providing corrective feedback when they did the step correctly or corrective feedback when they did the step incorrectly. <laughs> so I was able to kind of see the correspondence between right. how they performed and what type of feedback I was giving them, whether it was praise mm. or corrective feedback. Mm. And so if they matched, I was like, okay, I did a good job with accuracy. And if they didn't match, I was like, okay, oh, accuracy wasn't great on this, on this step. And so mm -hmm. then I was able to sort of collect all that information for all 30 steps for that one trial, that one movement. And I did that across all of the training trials for all of the participants, all of their skills. So a lot of data that I have to process. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was a very interesting analysis of feedback. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's one part that really needs to be looked into. So that way we know how to most efficiently and effectively provide feedback to athletes. And so outside of sort of the research, when you're kind of working in the clinical setting, are you, and again, this is, you know, and again, I'm just sort of trying to apply some, some of the basic stuff I've learned in OBM. I took Shannon Biagi's um, uh, online uh, intro to OBM course. It's really cool. Um, like a hundred bucks for like 15 credit hours and, and, um, and just a really good sort of overall understanding of the concepts of OBM. And, um, and uh, she talks about um, 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 trying to figure out what kind of feedback folks prefer. So, do, do, do you do you do you do any of that when you're when you're when you're doing your your actual like sort of clinical stuff with folks? Because um, because there's some people that just hate verbal feedback in general, um, um, and certainly they hate it in public. But I think that's I think you, I would I imagine most of the feedback that you folks are doing it probably one-on-one, -on -one, um, yeah. uh, especially with the folks with, with disabilities. But um, did, 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 do you look at that piece? Yeah, I think that uh, we do look at that when it comes to training some of the competitive dancers. Um, some prefer the verbal feedback. Some prefer the graphical feedback, which is really mm. cool. Yeah. Um, some prefer to have it written. So we do try to work with them on what they prefer, um, how they prefer to receive their feedback. Yeah. I think it's interesting with the um, ones who prefer the graphs. It's so cool because, you know, we explain the elements of the graph. Okay, this is what we're seeing on the x-axis. This is what's on the y-axis. Here are your data. This is where we were in baseline. This is where we were after we, you know, started working with you or, you know, implementing a certain procedure. You want to see the data go up. And that's such a, you know, basic and simple way to describe mm -hmm. it to like a nine or 10 year old, but yeah. yeah, they see the data go up and they get so excited about that. Um, and That's so cool. they, they really like to see the graphs. And I thought that was so interesting, um, yeah. that, that they would even be interested in looking at a graph <laughs> at their age. <laughs> I mean, it kind of makes sense. I mean, I know that's something again, that, that, that uh, again, coming out of the OBM stuff that, um, uh, as we're trying to sort of work with sort of, you know, group home staff who generally don't have much ABA training. Um, and, uh, and we're trying to sort of, um, you know, um, get them to sort of, you know, 
do basic activities. So essentially, you know, for the PBS or folks out there, kind of tier one stuff, you know, like just being nice and um, offering choices and offering activities and having a schedule and sort of, you know, basic sorts of things in place um, that um, the, and I had, I had Denny Reed on recently and he talked a lot, I think he talked a lot about sort of, you know, graphic, graphic displays being super reinforcing for folks to, to kind of see to see that and that folks that have no interest in making a graph or or any idea of how to design a graph they see a graph and they're they're, they're super motivated by it you know it's not just we behavior analysts that uh, love looking at graphs it seems to be everybody else but it's super cool to hear the, the little kids are looking at graphs and going this is awesome yeah it was really cool and I think one, one piece that you mentioned earlier is that some people may not want to see their graphs or their feedback on public display. And yeah. um, Dr. Quinn did a study where she did public posting of graphical feedback. Um, cool. So she did um, have the participants' graphs in the lobby of the studio. She would um, post it um, with their name um, because it was okay within the studio to have their name and their graphs next to each other. Um, and so then depending on if they met that, whatever their mastery criteria was um, or their criteria for improvement, whatever their goal was for that session, she would place a gold star next to um, those students. And so they really enjoyed having this sort of ceremony where their dance teacher would show the graph to everyone that was there in the studio that day and give them praise on the things that they were improving on, maybe provide hmm. some, some feedback. And... Um, they were dancers from different different levels, but they still enjoyed having people pay attention to them and pay attention to their improvements wow. and everything. And so they reported in the social validity as well that they they enjoyed the the public aspect of public posting. So you never know, maybe maybe someone is interested in doing public posting, even if so they think cool. they're not. <laughs> yeah, it it it's it's surprising, but then I guess it's not that um, that. Uh, that that little ones would be so reinforced by objective data, you know, um, and uh, you know we we always we often talk about how objective feedback is the best to give because it takes away the personalization and the emotion out of it. Um, and but to know that just even young ones are appreciating that, I mean, who knows? It could even be a you know a nice sort of um, segue into in, into introducing young folks to the field. Um, you know, uh, you want to make these yourself. Um, <laughs> Here's what you can do. That's really cool. Um, I'm wondering about um, um, I want to talk a little bit about sort of this the, the point program and, and sort of just behavioral coaching in general. So the point program is essentially a behavioral coaching program, right? Um, so first off, I want I want I hadn't really heard of it, and I kind of did, did a little, started to do a little Googling, and I, and I discovered that I didn't realize how far back the research on behavioral coaching goes, and that there are some really, look, I mean, I've only read the titles, but look like some really cool studies on behavioral coaching go back to the early 80s um, um, with, um, with a fellow that some folks will be familiar with and, 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 and probably didn't know, continue to do research with um, uh, that, that, that fellow that wrote the very first ever uh, published behavior analytic art article. Um, the what is it? The 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 
psychiatric nurse as an engine as an engineer i believe that's the article uh like 1958 or something like that and that's ted allian if i'm pronouncing his last name right but he's got a whole slew in the 80s of research on behavioral coaching i had no idea um 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 so first off what is behavioral coaching it seems like it's just what it is it's coaching using maybe behavior science but that's we don't want to use the the name of it in, in the definition. So, 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 what is behavioral coaching exactly? Yeah, I think it's the really. I mean, it is feels simple to me. I think because I've done it so much, but it really is the the application of you know behavioral practices and behavioral strategies into um, coaching these athletes. So, simple use of you know antecedent strategies and reinforcement contingencies um, to help improve and enhance sports performance. Um, and then I, I think that in the point program, we try to incorporate specific behavioral procedures like the tag teach and the public posting and, and um, video modeling, video feedback. Um, these are all parts of that, that point um, program that Mallory developed um, when she was mm. in her doing her dissertation. Um, and so those are all, you know, those, those four interventions are, are, the behavioral procedures that we specifically teach so that way they can improve performance um, and enhance performance. But then the, I guess general, we have general behavioral coaching strategies and then we have those specific procedures as well. So both can kind of go hand in hand to improve performance. I wonder for the listeners and for me, again, who not knowing much about coaching in general, I wonder if maybe you could kind of come up with sort of a, uh, you know, a, doesn't have to be a real example, but and and absolutely, if you want to use dance as as the medium, but sort of just kind of br- try to briefly sort of compare what sort of you know typical coaching might look like for you know you know let's just say you know for a particular skill, like if it was basketball, for shooting a basket, if it was for dancing, it's doing a dance sorry yeah. I, I, butcher, I apologize um, um, um uh versus versus behavioral coaching like what what makes them different right okay that's a good question i think that leads me more in a direction i think traditional i'll, I'll speak more towards dance because that's my sure. experience but yeah. uh, traditional dance instruction does involve a lot of coercive teaching methods um hmm. where you may see that they're kind of pointing out more criticisms rather than providing praise. Mm. Um, they may be using some punishment contingencies that they don't even realize that they're they're using, mm-hmm. but, but they're mm-hmm. using them. Um, and I think even praise can be very general. Um, just mm-hmm. to bring up one of um, the studies that Mallory did, she actually did a descriptive, descriptive analysis where she observed dance teachers teaching with their traditional teaching methods and took um, partial interval data on um, their feedback and instructions and whatever they're saying to their to their students and she categorized that that feedback according to um, specific verbal feedback general verbal feedback um, and then specific praise general praise and then also like yelling and Mm. all other different categories as well and she found that with the traditional teaching, oftentimes you might get a very specific criticism or correction, 
but then you're getting very general praise. So mm. it may be something like, oh, you didn't do that right. Like, you you know, your foot was, wasn't pointed. But then the praise side of it is good. So mm. it's very general. And so I think when we're looking at behavioral coaching, we are looking at task analyzing a skill and trying to get into the very specific aspects that are done correctly and incorrectly to mm. provide uh, feedback. And we're taking out the critical aspect of it and just um, providing praise, but then providing the corrective feedback in a way that isn't critical, but still helps the, the um, dancer or athlete improve. Mm. Yeah. The coercive pieces. Not surprising and, and um, you know, but but still wild to kind of say out loud, you know, that, that, that you know, that because we, we've tried to move away from coercion in our field, uh, you know, and I think we still have some struggles there that we're working on. But, um, you know, the coercion was certainly, you know, something I think that was used more earlier, earlier in the game in our field. Um, but to see that, you know, that you know, in 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 twenty twenty, that's still kind of the norm for a lot of different kind of coaching, and I don't think it's just dance. I think I, I think of um, certainly, I think a lot of, a lot of sports, you know, football and and others. There, there, I think there, there's there's a lot of yelling um, for sure. Um, um, you know, I, I'm and and in music, you know, I'm I, I, I brought this up in our pre chat. There's that movie. I think it's called Whiplash. Uh, and and uh, and a kid is um, uh, and sort of like a prodigy drummer that goes to uh, Berkeley and uh, and his his uh, his uh, drumming teacher he's the uh, what's the what's the guy's name um, the actor oh, I can't remember now but he plays J Jonah Jameson in Spider Man but uh, I can't remember his name bald guy um, anyway he does um, 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 he, he's just he, it's super coercive he's just screaming at the guy making him play till till his hands are literally bleeding you know and then and then and and demeaning and 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 you see this i think you see this kind of in acting too sometimes and mm-hmm. um you know and 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 the theory is you know they're i'm trying to build you know you know, yeah. resilience in you and, and, and strength. And, and, um, you know, I, I just, I just know you're awesome. So I'm trying to push you harder. Um, because somehow pushing harder seems to be the best practice in, in, in a lot of coaching. Um, and yet none of this stuff is research based, right? Like there's no research on is, is, is there research on uh, general in, in general on kind of you know, sports coaching outside of sort of behavior coaching? I haven't looked into the research outside of dance, uh, to be right. honest, but right. I, but just even do, with dance. So is, is there research outside of behavioral coaching on dance? Yeah. Yeah. Coaching. So, um, yeah, I looked into some of the research on like the coercive methods and sort yeah. of why, dance education hasn't evolved to be, um, <laughs> I guess, less coercive and, and yeah. um, moving away from, from the use of those, um, those practices. Yeah. And it's interesting to see that, you know, there, there is some relation between 
the use of coercive practices and um, chronic injuries in dancers, which right. was so was interesting. And I think what you were saying about, you know, the drummer and he, he's getting hurt in the process of practicing, but mm -hmm. he has to keep going and that could lead to a chronic injury. And then mm -hmm. thus the dancer can't dance in the future. They can't compete at that um, competition or they can't perform in that recital. And so the coercive practices just push, um, push the dancers to a point where they may not be able to perform and, and seriously injure mm -hmm. themselves. Um, or it can cause severe anxiety um, and stage fright, which is not mm -hmm. great when you're, you're in a performing art or when you're performing for a sport, you have one shot to perform. And so mm -hmm. if you have stage fright or anxiety that's been built up because of these coercive practices, well, then mm -hmm. we're not doing our job as, as a trainer or as a coach or a dance instructor. Yeah, you know, and, and, and it's just really become sort of the culture of a lot of these activities of, of coercion. Uh, it takes me back to, uh, now this dates me a bit, um, uh, but uh, you know, I, don't, I don't know if you, you remember the show, uh, and it would have been, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're quite a bit younger than me, but the, uh, the show that uh, would have been, might have been reruns was called Fame. You ever, ever heard of that show? It was back in the yeah. 80s. There was a show called Fame, and it was about a, it was about a, a, a school of the arts, um, in, uh, I think it was in New York and it was basically all of these sort of prodigies in, 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 in dance and music and whatnot, um, that would go to the school of the arts. Um, and, uh, it starred, uh, an actress named, uh, Debbie Allen, uh, who's still around and she's a, I think, I believe she's actually a dancer and a, and a choreographer herself and maybe an instructor. Mm -hmm. And the theme, I, I don't know, I don't know why this still sticks in my head. Cause I must've been probably seven years old when this was playing on the TV, um, but Debbie Allen would say at the beginning of every episode, it was sort of part of the, you know, it was part of, part of the, they had the theme song and then, and then they'd have Debbie Allen sort of yelling out this, you want fame? Well, fame costs. And right here's where you start paying. And it was just, and you, and it was really just emphasizing that coercion, you know, early right. on. And right. it's just become that culture forever. And this is a huge show back in the day. And so the world believes that coercion is the only way towards sort of success in these, you know, in right. whether it be a, in these sort of physical activity kind of sports. It's, it's like, so you're, you're fighting against a culture um, wow. in a way uh, with, 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 with the research. What, what's that like? And, 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 and how do you sort of tackle some of those, those barriers? The second secret word is coaching. Yeah, I, I think just to touch on what you were saying, it's interesting um, that these coercive methods are being perpetuated by the same people who experienced it. So dancers yeah. are often the ones who become dance teachers, right. and they use the same coercive methods that they were once taught with. And even though they didn't like it when they were dancers, dance students, yeah. they still use that when they become dance instructors. And when, you know, they're asked about why do you still use these methods, they say, well, it's, um, you know, to make them become a better dancer. Like, I went through it. Like, it made me a better dancer. And so it just just stays. That culture of using mm -hmm. coercive practices just, just stays. And um, I just thought it was so interesting that, you know, a dance student turned dance teacher is still using those same methods. And so how do we, yeah, how do we kind of combat that? So I think... In the research side of things, we um, 
we're working, or I, th I think we could work towards seeing how we can um, show the research that's um, being like coach or instructor implemented research. So rather mm. than having a researcher or a research team come in and implement an intervention um, to improve sports performance, why don't we teach the teacher to do it? Mm. Right. And yeah, cool. that will show them that like it'll demonstrate to them that, hey, if I use this procedure, I'm going to see the results because generally we we see that behavioral interventions work, um, mm -hmm. behavioral coaching works. So, mm -hmm. you know, if they participate in the study, they will they will see that demonstration happen in front of their eyes and they'll know that, mm. you know, I learned this procedure, I implemented it and now it's working. So I think mm -hmm. that from the research side, if we can recruit um, teachers, instructors, coaches, if we can use them to implement these procedures, that will start getting us the buy-in that will then translate into the clinical or sort of real-life side of um, yeah. of uh, sports. Yeah, because it, it's we're really talking about like almost like a another form of sort of intergenerational trauma in a way, you know. Um, you know, this this passing down of 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 awfulness um, from sort of one group to the other, and, and it makes me think of some of that. And, and I'm going to butcher some of this, but it makes me think think of some of that research, like uh, like from like Dr. Glenn, Sigrid Glenn, on on kind of the, the inter inter oh, interlocking contingencies, and and really basically she 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 does a lot of research on sort of how cultures form you know, through these sort of, you know, individual contingencies sort of analyses, but then they sort of interlock with each other and sort of build this, build this, and I'm butchering it, but um, um, look up doc, some of Dr. Glenn's work. I do have an episode on this. I think it's Val Saney um, who talks a bit about this. So check that out. But um, um, yeah, no, I mean, they're, 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 you could really dive deep into that. So how, just maybe more anecdotally, because you're you're working in a in a company that's you know training coaches and teaching coaches. Um, some of these folks are probably coaches that have used some of those more coercive practices, or or certainly been exposed to them at some point. Mm -hmm. What's what's the feedback from 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 those folks? Is, like, have you had do you have some good stories of sort of like you know essentially wake up calls of you know. I don't have to scream at someone anymore, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. Yes, when they see that these behavioral procedures work, I mean, I feel like it's less effort to implement some of the procedures or just provide specific feedback, um, specific praise and specific corrective feedback. Just that mm. process of providing verbal feedback in a more specific mm -hmm. manner, such mm -hmm. a, a, a easy low response effort way of, mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. um, doing a behavioral coaching procedure. Um, I think even that just shows them that, oh, I can get results and I don't have to yell at someone or I, you know, I yeah. don't have to get on, on the megaphone and, uh, you know, scream to the whole team. I, I can still get results. Uh, I think I was actually listening to one of Mallory's podcasts and she was saying um, that one of the dance teachers that she had worked with a long time ago would 
provide feedback. I say provide feedback, but they would throw a shoe at some of the students. And wow. oh my goodness, like that's that's not what we want to do. <laughs> and so then once they um, learned some of the behavioral procedures and practices, they're like, wow, well, yeah, it's less effort to do this than to throw the mm -hmm. shoe, right? So mm -hmm. um, I, I think that they once they, they get contact with this procedure result ends up with this result, improvements in my students' performance. They enjoy it. The coaches enjoy it. The parents enjoy mm -hmm. it. I think that they, you know, they get the buy-in. <laughs> they, mm -hmm. they come back and they want to learn more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to try to talk about just uh, two other kind of components. One, I was just wondering a little bit about the tag teaching side of things. So I, I, I know essentially what it is, so like, teaching with acoustical guidance and so the idea as i understand it is that um, um it can work well for folks that um what well, and, and and please add to this but i know it can work well for folks that maybe don't do well with verbal praise because um and uh you know instead the praise is just just um you know um well it's a click um of some sort of, or a sound that sort of uh, you know indicates they've done well on on a step and, and then they kind of move forward um, but you also mentioned sort of the importance of, of descriptive praise versus sort of general praise. So, you know, I really liked how you, you know, did that step, you know, correctly or whatever, uh, versus good. But to me, and again, not knowing much about this, just saying good sort of seems similar to just clicking. Um, uh, you know, so how does, how, how does, how does tag teaching fit into all this? Because it seems like it's a different kind of method altogether. Yes. Yeah. I think you, you got the basics down of tag teach. One thing that I will, um, say is that tag teach is used for very, very specific aspects of the skill. So mm. if we have a 30 step task analysis, you are tagging or you are clicking for one step not mm. for the completion of the whole skill. So, uh -huh. so, so if I not, didn't... Well, they're, they're, you're not going like this. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> While they're dancing, yeah. yeah. It's, it's having them perform, perform the skill, but you're clicking for only one aspect of the skill. Maybe mm. it's that their toes are pointed. So, mm. okay, I want, you know, I want this time when you do it, have your toes pointed. I'm going to click. If you hear the click, that means you did something correctly. Mm. Um, that, that means that your toes were pointed correctly. Yep. If yep. you don't hear a click, you should try again. Right. Um, and so you're clicking for very specific aspects um, mm. rather than, yeah, just saying good or one click overall for the whole skill won't give you enough information. Yeah. So it's, it's almost used as a way to give very specific praise. Mm, yeah. Gotcha. So yeah, that's an important clarification because I was sort of imagining someone with a clicker through the whole dance is going away. Good job, good job, good job, good job, good job, good job, good job. Um, and, and kind of blowing their mind. And so it's almost like, um, um, well, it's like you said, it's it's really a specific kind of pinpointed um, piece of, of the training. So you, you might not tag teach the whole dance routine. You would just sort of tag teach that particular area that they might be struggling with or whatever um is, is, is and and does that is is there a reason why folks use the tag teaching i'm um you know uh, versus just sticking with the sort of the praise pieces is it just because it can be so specific and and so sort of um 
um, uh, precise is the term, I guess? Yeah, I think one aspect is that it's very precise. I think, too, the kids, the athletes, they love it. It's something so mm. different. They've never, you know, had someone clicking for them. That's such, mm. such a different thing. Yeah, we hear all the time, mm. oh, you did this right. Oh, you know, you pointed your toes correctly. You put your arm in the correct position. But I've never had someone come out and, like, bring a clicker and tell me, mm. like, tell me that or indicate that to mm. me using the clicker. So the kids, the athletes, they love it. They think it's so interesting mm. and so fun. And wow. it's used as a very short, you know, quick intervention. Um, I think in Mallory's study that she published on this, it was um, a 12-minute session. It's super mm. fast, really, mm. really fast. You're just, you know, you're tagging, um, you're going through the task analysis and you're just tagging the different, the different steps in that. So um, I think it can be really useful, especially if you're looking to correct a specific movement. If you see that a, a athlete's, you know, really struggling with one specific step multiple, multiple times, okay, let me work on tagging that one specific step. Gotcha. Um, and maybe, you know, targeting that with the clicker and providing that very specific praise because it's the clicker sound. Um, that's the praise. Um, mm. Maybe that will help them, you know, improve their performance. Um, but then, you know, if not, then sometimes you have to use EST or some direct instruction to help teach the skill as well. So, The third secret word is feedback. How does, and again, I know, I know very little about tag teaching too. So how does, I get the click if they do it right. So they do it wrong, then there's no click. So then what happens? So, so they're the, told the, to try again. So basically okay. you just keep trying again until you hear the click. Right. Um, and because it's just a, a small movement, it's not like you have to wait a while to tell them to stop. Right, right. right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so then after a few tries, if they haven't heard the click and they're still attempting after maybe three yeah. or four times, then you may pause. Okay, let me provide some direct instruction on how to perform this tag point correctly. Gotcha. Okay, now let's try it again with the clicker. Gotcha, gotcha. We've talked a lot about sort of, uh, you know, the kind of the consequence side of things, the feedback, the positive, the negative, the the tag teaching, those sorts of things. But you've mentioned a few times that, you know, there's also, you know, some some really good antecedent kind of strategies and interventions. Can, can you give us some examples of what, what those might look like? What 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 kind of things can you do for and again sticking on sort of the dance sort of theme, what what might be some antecedent strategies you might put into place? Yeah, I think one of the biggest ones is video modeling. Um, which is commonly used in dance, but also other other sports as well. Mm -hmm. um, you can have a video model that you know the expert, some, an expert does, or maybe mm -hmm. you have like a Olympic level performer um, right. if you're looking at an Olympic sport. So right. um, you have a video of them performing whatever target skill, and you show that to the athlete before they perform the skill, and so it provides them with a visual of you know mm -hmm. how the how the skill is supposed to be performed and then you might even add in some additional like instructions or you know pointing out important components of the skill um, mm. to help them so that's oh, one of the, cool. the main antecedent strategies um, i think that that along with just some basic instructions and modeling but video modeling i think is cool because you can get like an expert level performer 
on your phone or on your laptop mm-hmm. and you're like, look, this is the top-notch best model for for this skill. Like this is an Olympic level yeah. athlete. So yeah, do what they do. <laughs> exactly. And now what about for some of the programs for the folks with intellectual disabilities? Same thing, video modeling, or there's some other things you're doing too? Yeah, interestingly, we can still use video modeling um, for different, like if they're doing a yoga pose, we might show them a video of, um, you know, that pose, or I've used it for teaching them different exercises. I'll use a video Mm. model. Um, But then also... um, providing some some visuals, some expectations, just some basic things to help the um this sort of the session flow mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and to manage expectations. Really cool. The one thing I wanted to go back to kind of before we wrap up and that's when when you first kind of start we're, we're talking about sort of the research and clinical and how you're focusing on muscle strengthening which again makes a lot of sense um uh, and reps and so on and so forth, um, and also sort of the importance of aerobic exercise. But you said that a lot of the research tends to be more around steps, you know, and 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 you know, the old Fitbit and the ten thousand steps or whatever, um, which I've never been able to grasp. Um, sort of um, how it makes sense. I, I did. Um, I do have. Uh, uh, I think it's actually right here on the sitting in, the, on, in a pile. I do have a. A, a really old sort of um, version of a Fitbit that I've I, I, I've worn every now and then. It's it's super pixelated. It's definitely the early version, um, and you know, the and, newer and, and, version. And, <laughs> yeah, and I, I wore it at the end of the day, um, um, and uh, and uh, I wore it and then looked at the end of the day and I said, you know, you did like seven thousand steps, but I didn't actually do anything. Like I, I, you know, I was this was just me around the house, you know, uh, walking up the stairs, you know going to the fridge, you know, wow. <laughs> taking the garbage out, you know, going, taking the dog for a walk. Maybe there's something real in there. more activity than most. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and, and then it says, oh, you've done like 8,000 steps. And I'm like, you know, I'm not far from this 10,000 number that everybody talks about. But in my mind, I didn't actually get any exercise. You know, I got movement, wow. you know, right. and I think movement is, movement is something. Why is there such a focus on steps and 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 is there any real kind of you know and i know you're not you're not a you're not you're not a, you're not a medical professional or or you know a physiotherapist or anything but is you know the but from what you've learned is, is like is there any value in walking 10,000 steps a day that you know that 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 is measurable measurable beyond the watch saying 10,000 on it yeah i i mean i think the aspect that you you said about movement, I mean, movement is great. I think it's yeah. better than us, um, you know, sitting and not moving. So movement sure. is great. But I think that it is important to note that, you know, it's recommended that we do 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so that moderate to vigorous physical activity, that requires your heart rate to be, I think it's like, 65% to like 93% of your maximum heart rate. So you need to be okay. at least briskly walking, speed walking, yeah. or, yes. you know, running or in, engaging yes. in, in exercise. And so, you know, maybe rather than a 10,000 steps per day, you need about 20 to 25 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per day. Mm-hmm. And so 
I think that aspect is the important one um, that you're actually getting your heart rate to a certain level that allows for the health benefits um, to really have an impact. You know, if you're doing um, 20 to 25 minutes of MVPA a day, that's going to give you more Mm -hmm. health benefits Mm -hmm. um, than walking at a very leisurely pace of, you know, doing 10,000 steps a day. Those are very different things. But maybe, you know, if you are walking, maybe you're more likely to pick up the pace a little bit and get yourself into that MVPA um, Mm -hmm. area. But uh, just 10,000 steps a day, although has some benefit than, you know, sitting, sitting around all day. Uh, I yeah. think it's important to get into that MVPA category and, and make sure your heart is pumping. Yeah. Cause it seems really more like it's like, like steps is just, you know, someone's, you know, Fitbit's doing a really good job at marketing. You know, <laughs> they've, they've convinced the world that you need steps and you got to count them by having our device, you know, <laughs> where, you know, whereas, you know, whereas, you know, maybe if the sort of metric was changed a bit, maybe it was 10,000 steps per hour, you know, um, that would ha- probably have to be vigorous because it, it'd be pretty hard to walk 10,000 steps in an hour. Um, and so maybe, 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 maybe those are the, those kind of measures might be more helpful, but yeah, I, I'm with you. Yeah. It, Cause it just, it just seemed, it just seemed pointless to me. It seemed like if I took the watch off, I'm still doing my 8,000 steps by going to the fridge and going, going to bed and mowing the lawn, you know? And so, yeah, but I don't feel, <laughs> I don't feel like I've, I, I've improved my health any, in any, in any manner beyond, like you said, you know, uh, you know, uh, keeping my, avoiding deep vein thrombosis by keeping my legs moving, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think, um, yeah, this is, the Fitbits are, are a way to measure your activity. You're doing your activity regardless of yeah. if you're, you know, measuring it or not. But, yeah. um, the newer Fitbits and some of the other um, newer products out there do measure like your active minutes. Yep. So your heart rate does have to be at a certain level for it to start counting those minutes. And I yep. found that to be useful for me to know, you know, how many of my minutes when I'm exercising is my heart rate elevated to a certain le- level that it's mm. going into a different category of mm-hmm. minutes. And so then you can kind of count your active minutes um, to see if you're getting to 150 by the end of the week. Right. So I think some of the technology is catching up to that idea of like, okay, well, yeah, we're doing, we're measuring steps, but also let's like measure the MVPA or, or active minutes side of things too. Mm-hmm. And just one more time, MVPA stands for what? Moderate to vigorous physical activity. Moderate to physical. Really cool. Really cool. Well, I, I love, I love seeing the science applied to things outside of, you know, the usual you know, uh, autism kind of intervention or, or, you know, uh, skills teaching for, you know, for uh, folks with barriers and whatnot. Um, I, lo- I love seeing it applied to sort of different areas. And I think this is a, it's a great way to kind of, you know, get our stuff disseminated. Have you just, just thinking about dissemination, I know you're early on and, and, um, and you're, you're, you're going to be working, do you're doing your dissertation now and analyzing the data and we'll probably try to publish that one. Um, have you or others, um, uh, and, and it's okay if you don't know the answer to this, but tried to publish any of this stuff in journals sort of outside of ABA to sort of get that exposure more? I I haven't tried with yeah. my research, but I know 
um, Dr. Quinn has tried with some of her dance research yeah. to explore some of the dance journals, especially because it's so important yeah. to um, help that field move away from the use of coercive practices. So if 100%. we can give them a replacement and, and give yeah. them some behavioral procedures that um, may be effective, I think that would be really cool to, to see that published in other journals. So yeah. that would be a goal. That would be really awesome to see that yeah. being disseminated in that way. Totally, totally. Really cool stuff. Really cool stuff. Um, I'm really looking forward to kind of seeing, you know, uh, what the results are from your dissertation. Um, how, how much longer do you think you have till, till you're till you're wrapping oh this thing goodness. up? <laughs> I think about one more year if all goes well. So right. keep your fingers yeah. crossed for me. <laughs> Absolutely. You're just in. You're 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 done. The sort of. Uh, um, work with the subjects now. So it's all just analysis and, and writing and, and defending now. Is that sort of where you're at? Uh, no. So that project that I was talking about with the uh, analysis, that is just a side project that I'm doing. Oh, that's um, not even... Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm about to, to start my journey with my dissertation. So I um, haven't started yet. And so what's that going to be? And what's that going to look like? Or do you even know? Or are you just, are you, is it too early to talk about that yet? Um. <laughs> I feel like I just don't want to jinx myself, but I no, I don't think that'll happen. Um, but I am working to promote physical activity with children with intellectual disabilities, yep. um, children and young adults, depending on yep. my population pool that I have available sure. to me. And so, yeah, we're looking at different, um, just different reinforcement contingencies that may help promote uh, physical activity. Like right mm. now, I'm doing a small case study. Um, that may sort of inform my dissertation, looking at token reinforcement to increase that number of reps that I was talking about mm. um, with some of the clients um, that have intellectual disabilities. And so um, we're, we're just kind of just trying to apply these different reinforcement contingencies to see um, if they work and, you know, can we kind of arrange can we like increase, you know, their their um, number of reps in like changing criterion designs? Right. Can we apply it in multiple baseline designs? So just sort of doing some of the preliminary research on mm -hmm. that, and and just getting an idea of um, what the applications are so far, and then using some of that information to inform my dissertation. Fantastic. Well, yeah. looking forward to that. Hopefully, <laughs> maybe when you're done and published, we can and and you're. And you and you and you're uh, you're a doctor. We, we can bring you back on to talk about it some more. That would be awesome. I'm looking forward right to on. that. <laughs> so cool, so cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Cheers.